morning. Stick out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 5. We come this morning to what's uh, probably one of the better known uh, miracle stories in the gospel. And this is the story of the paralytic being lowered in through the roof to see Jesus. Before we get to the story itself, let's remind ourselves of where we've been in this gospel in recent weeks so that we can see how this story from this morning builds off of what Luke has uh, previously presented to us. Uh, So starting in the middle of chapter 4, Luke consecutively gives us several miracle stories that clearly demonstrate Jesus' authority and his power. So Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37, Jesus drives this demon out of this demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Be silent and come out of him. And the people watching are amazed. And look at what they say in verse 36. What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Then the next story is about Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law of her high fever. And then all who are sick come to him And this time he shows his authority and his power over disease and illness. Beginning of chapter 5, you remember that story with Peter and uh, the miraculous catch? Well, there Jesus is demonstrating his authority and his power over nature. Those fish, immediately bringing boatloads of fish into Peter's net. Even though Peter and his men, as expert, lifelong fishermen, uh, they caught nothing all night. Then in chapter 5, from verses 12 through 17, and we spent our last two sermons on uh, this narrative, Jesus cleanses a leper, uh, showing that he has authority and power to cure a disease that was viewed as being incurable back then. And so throughout this section, right, it's been one demonstration after another of Jesus' authority and power over demons and diseases and nature and even leprosy. And the response to these demonstrations, well, it's been overwhelmingly positive, right? Everybody is amazed. Everybody's in awe. And as a result, as we saw last week, word's been spreading very quickly. Jesus is becoming immensely popular. Well, that brings us to our story for this week in chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And in this narrative, Jesus is once again going to show his authority and his power over sickness and disease and nature and the human body. But he's also going to go much further than that. He's going to show that he also has the authority and the power to forgive sin. And so that makes this story kind of like a a climactic point within this section of Luke. Like the narratives that have come before this have just been building up to this uh, because here Jesus is going to clearly demonstrate to everybody who's watching his ultimate mission. The reason that he came, it's really not about miracles. It's really not about healings. It's really not about exorcisms, though he did do all of those things. His ultimate mission was to forgive sin. Remember what we saw back in chapter 4 from verse 16 on? Remember, Jesus is preaching at the synagogue in Nazareth. And there he declares that he is the spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah 61. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what would that spirit-anointed Messiah do? Look at Luke 4.19. He would proclaim liberty. Literally, forgiveness. He would proclaim forgiveness to the captives. 
Well, here in our story, Jesus is going to clearly demonstrate exactly that. That he has the authority, he has the power to forgive sin. To free those who have been enslaved by sin. To proclaim liberty to those who have been taken captive by sin. So we'll start by just reading our narrative in its entirety. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. So look along as I read. This is the word that God has for you this morning. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, What do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, And go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Father, we ask that you would be with us in an extraordinary and unique way this morning as we look into this particular narrative of the Gospel of Luke. We pray that even those of us who are familiar with this story will see it with fresh eyes, and that we would see the glory of your Son and his mission, and that we would grow in our trust and our love for him. We do believe that when your people read and study from your word and faith, that you speak to us. And so we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Amen. All right, let's start with verse 17. And verse 17 basically serves to link our narrative from this week to what we talked about last week. And so you'll remember the two points from last week's sermon were point number one, Jesus' popularity, and then point number two, Jesus' prayer. If you look at verse 17, it's because of point number one, Jesus' popularity, that now great crowds have gathered as he's teaching— Uh, Mark tells us that this event happens in the city of Capernaum. Maybe it's at Peter's house. Uh, Who knows? But presumably, it's a a pretty large house by the standards of the day. And among those who have gathered are the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. More on them in a little bit. And the point number two from last week was Jesus' prayer. Remember that Jesus... In his prayer, he would express his dependence on the Father's will and on the Spirit's empowering. And so it's no surprise to us that we see here in verse 17 that the power of the Lord is with Jesus to heal. Now the rest of the narrative from verses 18 to 26 
Uh, There's a number of ways in which we could divide it up, but maybe the easiest way to track what's going on here is to see uh, three groups of people and their different responses to Jesus in this story. And so uh, we're going to look at point number one, the friends and their determination. Point number two, the Pharisees and their opposition. And then point number three is going to be the crowds and their amazement. Uh, the friends and their determination, the Pharisees and their opposition, and the crowds and their amazement. And so let's start with the friends. The friends and their determination. This is verses 18 through 20. Verse 18 reads, Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So you've got this paralytic I'm not sure why he's paralyzed. Maybe he was born with some sort of condition. Maybe he got into an accident uh, that damaged his spinal cord. Uh, Maybe it was something else. We don't know. Uh, We just know that he's a paralytic. He's unable to uh, move his body. He's confined to a bed. And presumably he'd been that way for some time. And we've got his four four friends. Uh, The some men in verse 18, Mark tells us that there are four of them. And so the paralytic... Uh, His four friends, they hear about Jesus, all the healings that he's done, the leper that he's just cleansed. Uh, Word is spreading fast, and and they hear that he's at this house in Capernaum. He's teaching, and they think to themselves, we've got to get to Jesus. Maybe he can do something. We've got to get to Jesus. And so they set out. There's no wheelchairs back then. So uh, the four friends are literally carrying the paralytic on his mat. But then they get there, and it's kind of like what Yogi Berra said. Uh, Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Uh, Not only is the house filled to the max, it's packed to the brim, it's standing room only, but there's also a crowd outside of the house so that you can't even get to the door. Mark tells us there was no more room, not even at the door. So you can picture these guys in your mind's eye. Like, ah, I told you we should have left 30 minutes earlier. Look how crowded it is now. Maybe they walk around the perimeter of the building, the house, and uh, they see no openings. There's no way to get inside. And we really wouldn't blame them at this point for just giving up and going home. Like maybe if it's one guy by himself, he can kind of elbow and kind of shimmy his way through the crowds. But this is four guys, and they're carrying a paralytic on a mat. It's like trying to push a double stroller through Times Square on New Year's Eve, right? It it is just not happening. So maybe we we would think they would say, maybe next time. We can try again. But point number one is the friends and their determination. These guys are not ready to give up. They call an audible. Presumably one of them, maybe it was the paralytic himself, uh, one of them pitches this crazy idea to the others. Uh, what, if, what if we went up on the roof? Typical home back then would have been one story uh, with a flat roof on top that basically served as a second story, right? You could eat there, you could hang out there, uh, you could even go to sleep on a cool night there. Uh, and there would have been an outdoor staircase to get to that roof. And so uh, let's not underestimate just how difficult this would have been, how much effort it would have taken if you've ever... Uh, moved into a walk-up apartment. You know exactly what this is like. These are four guys carrying a guy on his mattress up the stairs. But they get to the roof. The roof would have been made of some combination of 
like thatch and mud and uh, straw and clay and all that kind of laid over some beams. And so they get up on the roof. They try to figure out where Jesus would have been standing. They go directly above where he would have been and they just start digging a hole. Hospitality always comes with its challenges, right? That's why Peter commands us to show hospitality to one another without grumbling because inevitably your house guests they break things. They, they mess things up in your home. And this is like a whole nother level, though. You can just imagine the owner of the house. He's, he's standing there, whether it's Peter or someone else, and it's like, hey, that's, that's my roof. What are you doing to my roof? It's like a State Farm commercial. These guys are opening up a hole big enough for a man on his bed to be let down. And this isn't like, you know, like a Tempur-Pedic mattress. It's just like a cot. But it still requires a significant hole to be broken in the roof. So the friends let their paralytic friend down through this hole. Surely at this time, like any teaching that was going on has been put on pause because all eyes are now fixed on this man and Jesus. Like how is Jesus going to respond to all this craziness? Look at verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. When he saw their faith, their faith was made visible. It was made manifest through their actions, right? Through the determination that they showed to get their friend to Jesus. But clearly they truly believed that Jesus was no ordinary man. And that was visibly evidenced by their willingness to go to any lengths necessary to get him to Jesus. Massive crowds, no problem, right? No room at the door, not a problem. We got to dig a hole through the roof. Not a problem. Their faith was clearly visible through their determination. But Jesus' response to their faith, well, maybe it's not what everybody was expecting. Now, the crowds are expecting. Remember, they've seen Jesus perform several miracles to this point, right? They're expecting him to say, man, your paralysis is healed. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he eventually is going to say that. But that's not what he says at first. No, instead he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, why would Jesus talk about this man's sins when clearly his most visible need, the most obvious need, is for his body to be healed? Well, by saying, man, your sins are forgiven you, Jesus is not necessarily saying that this man's paralysis Uh, His physical ailment was a direct result of his sin. Uh, That certainly was a a prevailing thought back in that day. Rabbi, who sinned that this man was born blind? Uh, Is it he that sinned or his parents that sinned? One of them must have sinned to cause this blindness. Well, no, it was neither, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Job, surely you sinned. That's why you've been afflicted in all these ways. Well, not quite, Bildad. Sometimes physical ailments are a result of sin, but not always. Rather, Jesus makes this proclamation about sin and forgiveness to teach two very important things. First, he is making the point that this man's spiritual condition, this man's spiritual need is far more important than his physical condition and his physical need. Like, yes, this man has been terribly afflicted in his body through his paralysis. But worse yet, 
is his spiritual condition. He is a sinner who has sinned against the holy God. Like even if he could be, feel, be healed uh, perfectly, uh, rise, pick up his bed and go home, even if he could live another 20 to 40 years of just mobility and walking and health, well, unless his spiritual condition is addressed, he's going to spend an eternity in hell because of the sin that he's committed against a holy God. Sin that he's committed in his life of which he's never been forgiven. And so Jesus says to him, skipping past the immediate physical need, going straight to his eternal spiritual need, he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And one thing that's not stated here, but I think is strongly implied by the rest of Scripture, is that God granted this man faith. Uh, however rudimentary it might have been, right, faith that Jesus could save him. Uh, because salvation, uh, the forgiveness of sins, is by faith. And so we're not exactly sure what he was expecting when his friends brought him to Jesus. But we know that he believed, at least on some level, that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, who could not only physically heal him, physically healing the sick like him, but also proclaim liberty to those captive to sin, again, like him. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus makes the point that this man's spiritual need is even more important than his physical need. Like, is it better to be carried to heaven with two lame legs or to walk straight to hell with two healthy ones? Now, put it that way, the answer is glaringly obvious, right? Of course, whatever trials and sufferings might come in this life, it's always better to end up in heaven, in eternal glory, in the presence of God, as opposed to hell, in eternal torment. But then practically, like as we look at our own lives, well, just think about how quick we are to prioritize our physical and material needs over our spiritual needs. And my greatest need is to have a better job. And so I will gladly skip church. I will gladly miss fellowship, whatever I need, that I might advance in my career. Because that's what's most important to me right now. My single greatest desire is to have a better marriage, better home life, I just need practical advice on those things. I don't need another sermon. Well, what are we saying? A better job, a better family life, being healed of paralysis? Of course, those are not bad things. Except when the pursuit of those things blinds us to our actual greatest need, which is to be forgiven of our sin. Friends, I know that there are a lot of you this morning who are here. Uh, you are not a Christian. Jesus has plenty to say about your work life and your school life and your home life and your marriage and your parenting and your health and your friends and your relationships. But none of those things is your greatest need. Like you can have all of those things fixed up perfectly and you could live your best life now for the next 20 to 40 years of your existence here on earth. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? 
But look, what's all that going to do for you when you're being judged by a holy God for your sin against him? And surely you will be found guilty for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like what is all of that stuff going to do for you when you are spending an eternity in hell paying for the sins that you've committed against the holy God that were never forgiven? And so the first thing that Jesus teaches is that this man's spiritual need is far more important than his physical need. And friends, the same thing holds true for each and every one of us. Our spiritual need is far more significant than our physical need. Our sin, our sin is what creates our greatest need. But the second thing that Jesus teaches here, and this is like the point of the point of the narrative, the second thing that he teaches here is that he has the authority and the power to forgive that sin. Man, your sins are forgiven you. Which brings us now to the second group of people and their response to Jesus, right? Point number one was the friends and their determination. Point number two is the Pharisees and their opposition. Verses 21 through 25, the Pharisees, it's the first time we're meeting them in Luke They're going to play a major role, though, as the kind of like primary antagonists for the rest of the gospel. Uh, The Pharisees, and we'll talk a lot more about them next week, uh, they were like a separatist group within Judaism. They would separate themselves from mainstream Judaism through this whole system of rules and regulations that they would add to the law of God, right? The tradition of the elders. And that would breed in them many, uh, in many of them, this Uh, This self-righteousness, this hypocrisy, this legalism, right? Jesus is going to confront them on all that later. Uh, The teachers of the law, also known as the scribes, kind of like a smaller group. Uh, Many of them were Pharisees. Uh, They were like the experts in the law. They were the, uh, the scholars of the law. And it says, backing up to verse 17, that these Pharisees and teachers of the law had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Uh, Seems to imply that it's some kind of official delegation. Uh, They're coming from afar to see with their own eyes, like, what's going on with this Jesus guy? We've heard a lot about him. Let's go see him for ourselves. But they're not coming in faith. Uh, They're not even coming with, like, a neutral curiosity. They already didn't like Jesus. They don't like the things that he's saying. They don't like the things that he's teaching. They don't like the things that he's doing. So maybe they're hoping to to catch him in in something that he might say or something that he might do, waiting for him to trip up so that they might pounce on him. And so when Jesus declares, man, your sins are forgiven you, well, what's their response? And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In one sense, uh, their response is theologically and biblically accurate. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Like God alone can forgive sins. That is a that is a true statement. Uh, Perhaps you've heard this illustration before, but I think it'll be helpful. I suppose that uh, Daye and Houston and I are hanging out, and Daye just, just randomly punches Houston and, and knocks him down. And I'm a good friend, so I, I help Houston up to his feet. 
And then I turn to Daya and I say, I forgive you. Houston's like, you can't forgive him. He hit me. Only I can forgive him. It's only the offended party that can really forgive someone. Well, consider what the scriptures say. God is our creator. He made every single one of us. God is also our lawgiver. He gives us rules that we should live by. And so all of our sin, yes, we do sin against other people, but all of our sin is ultimately against God because it's his laws that we are breaking when we sin against one another. Yes, we do offend one another, and so we must forgive one another. But on an even grander scale, God is the ultimate offended party in every sin that we commit. Now consider David. He sins against Bathsheba and Uriah and Joab and like the entire nation of Israel. But what's his conclusion? Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you only have I ultimately sinned, and so only God can ultimately forgive sins. And so we might say that forgiving sin is a divine prerogative that belongs only to God. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And so the Pharisees got this right. Let's give them credit. It's only God who can forgive sins. But now here's Jesus claiming to have the authority to forgive sin. And this is not Jesus declaring on behalf of God that God has forgiven this man's sin. Kind of like when Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. Right? That's Nathan as God's prophet speaking on behalf of God. But that's not what's going on here. You know, here Jesus is claiming that authority, that prerogative for himself. Look at verse 24. The Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So the Pharisees have two and really only two choices here. Either Jesus is rightly taking upon himself the divine prerogative to forgive sin because he himself is God, or he's lying. He's not God. He's just an ordinary man But as one who makes himself equal with God, he is a wicked man, guilty of of one of the worst of crimes, blasphemy. And if he is a lying blasphemer, well, according to the very law of Moses, he should be put to death. He should be stoned. There is no, like, alternative category, uh, despite what some people might say of, like, Jesus is this good moral teacher, this ethical teacher whose example we should follow, and and he's just that. The Gospels allow for no such category of Jesus. And so of these two options, well, the Pharisees choose, uh, at least in their hearts, they choose the second. This man is a blasphemer. So don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's clearly what he's doing here. He's claiming to be God. And importantly, that's how the Pharisees understand him here. That's why they call him a blasphemer. But you see, all of this is kind of happening behind the scenes, if you will, because the, the Pharisees aren't saying this out loud. They're just thinking these things in their hearts. But look at verse 22. Jesus perceives their thoughts 
He's able to see right into their hearts. And we recall Simeon's prophecy about Jesus. Remember Luke chapter 2, that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's exactly what's going on here. Thoughts from many Pharisee hearts are being revealed. And no creature is hidden in his sight. And so Jesus, right, he knows that they're charging him with blasphemy in their hearts. And so he poses to the Pharisees a question. Verse 23, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Well, what's the answer to that question? Well, it's a lot easier for me to say, when I was 18, I dunked a basketball. Because that's largely an unverifiable statement. It's harder for me to say, I can dunk a basketball. Because you would reply, show me. And I would reply, oh, not today, my back's hurting. But but you get my point. It is a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven you than to say rise up and walk. Because your sins are forgiven you, uh, saying that the paralytic sins are forgiven, that's not really a verifiable statement. Like you can't see the forgiveness of sins. You can't disprove it if it didn't really happen. Rise and walk. Declaring that this man's paralysis is cured, that is a verifiable statement. Prove it. And so Jesus doesn't stop with the declaration that the man's sins are forgiven. He proves it. He demonstrates it undeniably that he does have the authority and the power to forgive sin by healing the man physically. Verse 24, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Because the same omnipotent godness that allows him to heal the man of his paralysis Well, that's the same omnipotent godness that gives him the authority and power to forgive sin. So that you may know. Like, so yes, he is healing this man because of the compassion that he has for him. But don't forget, right? He is healing the man to prove a point to the Pharisees, to all who are watching, of who he is. So that you may know that I can forgive sin. Now you realize verse 24, like this is like a decisive moment right here. Like if Jesus says this, and then the man tries to get up, but he can't, if he's unable to move his limbs after all, well, at that point, the fraud has been exposed, right? That's game over, right? Like Jesus has completely embarrassed himself in front of this large crowd. His ministry is finished. But of course, that's not what happens, Verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Immediately, oh, we've seen that word over and over again with these healing miracles, this idea that the sick person is instantaneously made well. Uh, When I have a bad headache, right, I take some, some Advil, some Excedrin, and after a little time passes, I feel better, but it takes some time to kick in. But when Peter... His mother-in-law, Jesus heals her. Well, what happens? Chapter 4, verse 39. Immediately, Peter's mother-in-law rose and began to serve them. Or what about when Jesus heals a leper? Chapter 5, verse 13. Immediately, the leprosy left him. And when Jesus heals the paralytic, what happens? Verse 25. Immediately, 
he rose up. And this, like, 100% complete, full recovery, it's evidenced by the fact that this man, this man has not walked, he has not moved his limbs in who knows how long. He literally picks up his mattress and just carries it home. There's not like this like gradual strengthening. There's no residual weakness. There's no walking on crutches for a few weeks. Instantly, 100% healed. And I love this. Look at verse 24, right? Look at Jesus' command to the man. It's rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now compare that to verse 25, what the man actually does. He rose, he picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home. That one-to-one correspondence there between what Jesus said and what actually happened, I don't think that's a coincidence. Luke's clearly making a point here that what Jesus says as the omnipotent sovereign of the universe, what Jesus says happens. Let there be. And there was. Let's not get lost in this fantastic miracle that we forget what we've been saying all along, that the point of this story is that this man's greatest need was not his physical need, but his spiritual need. And so as great as it is for him that he can now physically walk, like in the big picture, that's almost irrelevant. The physical healing only serves to prove and verify and authenticate the spiritual healing, right? That's the bigger news. That's the greater miracle. The more significant thing for this man is that he is going home justified. His sins have been forgiven. And so he goes home not just happy that he can walk again, although I'm sure he was happy that he could walk again. He goes home, look at verse 25, glorifying God because it's God who has forgiven him of his sins. Now, the Pharisees are seeing all of this. They're just speechless. Because remember that decision that they had to make earlier. Either this man is God himself, or he is a liar, a deceiver, and a blasphemer. But now they're forced to reconcile in their heads. If he's just a liar and a deceiver and a blasphemer, how in the world did he just do that? How was he able to back up what he said like that with this undeniably, miraculous, instantaneous, immediately miracle? Now you might think that the only rational response left to them at this point is to admit that they're wrong, acknowledge that the one standing before them is really who he says he is, and worship and follow him. But no, hard hearts continue to reject Jesus in the face of mountains of evidence. And so the Pharisees, and we're actually going to see them in the next four stories in this gospel, their hearts are just going to continue to get harder and harder. They accuse him of blasphemy in this story, and really that's just a foreshadowing, right? pointing us all the way ahead to the very end of this book, because it's for that exact charge that Jesus is going to be crucified. And so it's like what Jesus says in John 5.40, right? Like Pharisees, you have so much evidence, evidence upon evidence, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Well, that brings us to the third group and their response. Point number three is the crowds and their amazement. 
Verse 26, amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. We have seen extraordinary things today. Today, today, you remember that word from this gospel. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right, that's Jesus' self-revelation. He's the Messiah. And these extraordinary things that we have seen today, well, they're just further proof of what Jesus said about himself. He really has come to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We have seen extraordinary things today, not just that the paralytic who came in literally through the roof on a bed, that he walked out on his own strength with his bed rolled up under his armpit, not just that, but even more extraordinary. What Jesus has clearly demonstrated for us all to see, that he has the authority to forgive sins. But now let's come back to a question that we asked earlier. It's the question on which this whole narrative hinges. It's the question in verse 23. Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? And we said, well, of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you because you don't have to back that up. And so, yes, generally speaking, like for me or for you or for any normal person... It is easier to say your sins are forgiven you. Let's think about this some more. Jesus is no ordinary man. Jesus is God incarnate. He cannot lie. He cannot deceive. Which means that if he says something, it must come to pass. So if he says to the man, rise and walk, he's going to rise and walk. And if he says to the man, your sins are forgiven you, well, the man's going to be forgiven. Saying equals doing for Jesus. And so perhaps we ought to reframe the question this way. Which is harder to do? To miraculously heal the paralytic or to forgive him of his sins? And see, now our answer is a little different. Because for Jesus to heal that man, I mean, I can't really call a miracle easy, but you get what I'm saying. Remember what Luke noted in verse 17 of our narrative, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And so comparatively, that's easy. It doesn't cost Jesus anything. But for Jesus to forgive this man of his sins, well, that's going to cost him his very life. Because a holy God must punish sin. A holy God can't forgive sin by just overlooking it, pretending it never happened, acting like it's just not that big of a deal. Now, in order for this man to be forgiven of his sin, like truly absolved of the wrath that he deserves, well, Jesus is going to have to take that wrath in his place. And so Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He suffered, 
He became a curse for this man by taking all of his sins, by dying on the cross, by satisfying God's justice so that what he said about the man, man, your sins are forgiven you, so that that might be true. Jesus did not have to become man to heal a paralytic. But in order for Jesus to save man from his sins... Well, not only did he become man, but he also humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To say your sins are forgiven you, that's a statement that would cost Jesus his life. But that's exactly what he came to do. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Not just for this paralytic, but for all who would place their trust in him, right, for all who would look to him, his death, his resurrection, as the only means by which we might have the forgiveness of sins. And so, friends, let me ask you are your sins forgiven? Are your sins forgiven? This narrative clearly presents Jesus as the one who has the authority and the power to forgive sin. And as we're going to see further developed in this gospel, right, Jesus is the one who, through his death in our place, accomplishes that forgiveness for his people. So that if you would repent and believe in Jesus today, you too can be forgiven of all of your sins. We recited it this morning in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And don't let your familiarity with that phrase obscure its glory. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Right? That's the point of this gospel. That's the point of this story within this gospel that the Son of Man has authority to forgive you of your sin. Will you run to him? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Hear these words in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we have sinned against you, but we glory in the truth that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin, that Jesus accomplished our forgiveness on the cross through his death, through his resurrection, that he has imputed to us, he has given to us his perfect righteousness that we might be your children. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you, Pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they would see and glory in the forgiveness of sins that only you can provide. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.